Uh, good morning. Hi, balcony people. Y'all doing all right? I'm going to talk to you guys. No, I'm just kidding. My name is Trey. What is y'all's name? Anyway, uh, I saw, we, I asked this first service and I heard six kids had been rescued in the, uh, the uh, cave in Thailand. Is that, is that, it's higher than that now? What is it now? We're down to four? Well, that's not good news. Tony says more. Okay. Okay. Listen, it would be like Jason last week where he was asking for scores. If you hear a higher number than six, let me know. All right? And we'll applaud that. But that's kind of been occupying. If you hear a higher number than six, yell it out. Because I'm still believing six. I'm believing they're all coming out of there. So, um, good morning. Um, do we have any militant hand washers here this morning? I know my wife. I look over. She's like, oh, okay. I see you up there. Balcony folks wash their hands. That's good. Uh, I know my wife is one because she is teaching me. She's been teaching me for my whole adult life, I think, to wash my hands, wash my hands, wash my hands. Um, but for those times that aren't real conducive to wash hands, Jenny, you always count on Jenny for the little, the life-giving little uh, pump spray with the, you know, the stuff like that. I go pump gas in the car. She likes the gas stations that actually have the, have you seen those? Those are fancy. But, uh, but if, if they don't, and I just get back in the car after uh, gassing the car, apparently the, uh, the gas thing is covered in filth, and I must wash my hands or we're all going to die in the car. So um, when we're walking into a store, for instance, do, y'all, do you ladies do this? She either will get her sleeve and pull the handle or the hem of her dress. It's actually quite amusing to watch because... Or the, be- the best thing is she'll defer to me, not out of chivalry, but just out of germiness, or wait for somebody to come out and then catch it with her foot and then walk in. Y'all do that? That's my wife. So anyway, I, uh, oh, bathrooms. Don't even get, don't even get started there. Guys, uh, I can appreciate some of you, about 75% of you, according to my statistics, don't wash your hands in the bathroom. I'm just saying, I watch you, and you don't. <laughs> and so, you're nasties, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm shaming you, hopefully. Wash your hands. Um, but this morning, we're going to read a story uh, in the Bible. We're going to continue the little, um, the series where Jesus quotes te- uh, uh, all the Old Testament. And so, uh, in this story, we're going to see some guys that are really consumed with washing their hands, or at least that's what it appears. But with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll read the text together. Father, I just want to ask that you uh, meet us here this morning. We know you're present. Father, we ask for your your Holy Spirit to guide us through your word. Uh, We'd ask for conviction where that needs to happen, comfort where that needs to happen. And Father, we just ask just to, to, that you manifest yourself to us through your word this morning. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So uh, we're going to be in chapter, I forget, what, what is the thing? Uh, 15? Chapter 15, 1 through 6 or 7, I think. It says this, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, 
Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you, the Pharisees, say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother, it is devoted to God. They are not to honor their father and mother with it. Thus, you nullify, nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So we'll unpack that a little bit. But we're picking up a story here. And Jesus, Jesus has been going throughout and around the Sea of Galilee. And he just fed the 5,000. He walked on the water uh, out to the disciples. And uh, they got in the boat and they traveled over to Gennesaret. Still, still right. I got it right both services. Uh, so people had heard that Jesus was kind of touring the area. They were bringing out all their sick. They're bringing out anybody with an ailment. They're bringing out, they, they just thought if, if Jesus will touch them or if, or if I can even just touch the, the, the hem of his cloak, I would be saved. And that's what happened. There was tons of people that were getting healed. Um, anyway, Gennesaret is on the uh, northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. It's about 60 miles from Jerusalem, which is going to be important here in just a second. Uh, because you and I might think 60 miles, we could get there in less than an hour driving. But if you're walking or riding a donkey or whatever, it's going to take you seven or eight days to get there. So here we find the elite Pharisees uh, who've been dispatched, and they've traveled all the way from Jerusalem. Um, we know that because the, the verse said that. Uh, they came to hear Jesus. They came to see some miracles, maybe cause a little discomfort, and then uh, to report back on this wayward rabbi to the powers that be back in Jerusalem. So this is obviously a long journey, and these aren't local Jewish leaders. These are, these are guys that have traveled quite a ways. The, the local guys would have been dispatched from Galilee, which would have been a lot closer. So these guys are definitely their own mission. They're here with a purpose, and it's to find fault with Jesus and his followers, and to, uh, this didn't go over well, to throw shade at Jesus. I said that in the first service, and nobody even got that, so... Anyway, y'all get that? Throw shade. Anyway, I don't even know. I try to mix in a little lingo for the kids. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So stay awake, Burton kids. Are y'all in here? No? Y'all gone? Oh, there, there's one. Oh, anyway. So anyway, uh, so anyway, these guys, these Pharisees are waiting around for the first opportunity that they can jump on something, and, and they weren't disappointed. They didn't wait long. And they ask, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. See, the hand washing is a big deal to Pharisees, and it's not necessarily for cleanliness or hygiene. Uh, it was a ritual thing. It was, it was a way that they did it. And uh, so a certain way that they held their hands like this, a certain way that they poured the water from a certain type of vessel, and the water had to travel down the hand, out the wrist, kind of thing like that. And there was a certain way that they did it. Uh, there was a certain prayer that was said during the time that they were washing their hands and a certain number of times that they did that, wash their, wash their hands. And then there was no speaking again until the blessing of the bread or the food for the meal. It's a, it was a whole thing. Um, and see, so when they're saying your disciples aren't washing their hands, they're not saying just for hygiene. These guys, these guys had walked all over the desert. They'd walked around the Sea of Galilee. They'd just finished sailing uh, across the... the, the uh, the sea there. And so these, these guys, grubby little paws were probably nasty and they probably just went and rinsed them off, you know, soap and water kind of thing, like none of you guys do in the bathroom. Um, because they just, you know, 
usually, when you get, eat, you want to have cleaner hands. So, but the Pharisees d- took issue with the fact that they didn't do it ritualistically. They didn't do the whole process. And so they were pointing out that Jesus, this rabbi Jesus, he failed to instruct his disciples correctly, according to their tradition. But notice that Jesus never defended the disciples in their decision not to wash their hands according to tradition. It's important to know that Jesus isn't all that impressed uh, or concerned with the tradition of the elders or what they might have to say about it. And so unfortunately for the Pharisees, uh, Jesus quickly turns this back on them. He exposes them as law-breaking, hypocritical sinners that they were when they ask, or when he asked them back, and why don't you, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Now, this is fairly pointed, definitely uh, he's taking a direct charge at something specific that the Pharisees are doing that I, I didn't know just at first glance when reading over this. You remember growing up in church that you heard that, that uh, it might have been the first Bible verse you le- learned, other than Jesus wept because that was short, but the first Bible verse you learned as a kid, if you went to church, was obey your parents, children, obey your parents. Children, obey your parents, and it'll go well with you in life, and you won't, anyway, it was a thing, uh, and it was one of the first, it was one of the Ten Commandments, and it was number six, if you're counting, which is right below thou shalt not murder, so it's a pretty big one, I think, um, so the second verse that Jesus is quoting is also from Exodus, one chapter over, it says, anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death, so my son and I were sitting on the back porch talking about this whole, this passage, and why you know, what, what the heck did they do? What is Jesus on them about? Because we don't understand. They just didn't wash their hands and then Jesus turns it all around and makes a big deal about it. So our question is, what does this part mean? What is Jesus even talking about in this next part? When he says, but you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So we need to know this. We need to know why this is a big deal to Jesus. Uh, because of what it was. If, if, we're, if we're guilty of this and nullifying the word of God, I definitely want to know about it. Um, so this tradition, this tradition is believed to have, not specifically this tradition, but tradition as a whole, is believed to have divine authority, although not part of scripture, or in this case, the law. In the Jewish culture, it would have been an ordinance of the law passed down orally, but not in the Torah. Many times Jews believed that this carried as much weight as the law handed down to Moses. What we find, and Jesus is about to point out, is that the Pharisees believed and ascribed to something secular. They, they ascribed to something secular as sacred. When Jesus presses against the Pharisees, he's bringing to their mind their own practice of Corbin. Corbin, K-O-R-B-I-N, and there's alternate spellings. But if you look over in Mark chapter 7, there's a parallel uh, version of the story, and this word is used, Corbin. Corbin was a pronouncement made in public that gifts given to them were excluded from the care for or honoring their mothers and fathers. Corbin was a pretty slick maneuver, which allowed the Jews to opt out of the things that they deemed secondary, like caring for their aging parents, because their primary concern was to God. Here's how it worked. Basically, you pronounce Corbin on something, it froze the money. It froze the money, and it was excluded from the use of caring for their parents. They could use their tradition to abdicate their duty or what the sacred law requires, in caring for their parents. They might even find a way of down the road nullifying the whole transaction, say after the parents have died uh, and they want their Corbin back, right? They can do that. There's a, there's a whole thing for that. It's a very clever tradition that had been used as a loophole in the law uh, of taking care and honoring their parents. 
On the outside, when you pronounce Corbin, it all sounded and looked good. Religious, righteous. These people are putting this money aside. They're saying it's not for anything other than God. And so I can't use it. But what no one saw was the condition of the heart it would take to neglect one's parents. You see, honoring one's parents isn't simply obeying. You know, we grow out of that when we leave the house, really. You're on your own. Um, It's not necessarily just saying good things about them, but it's caring for them once they're unable to care for themselves any longer. It's about sacrificing our comfort, our time, and our possessions because it's the right thing to do. This is how we honor our parents. This is part of the Mosaic Law. And most of us wouldn't even consider not caring for our aging parents. But we see here, though, we leave it to the religious folks to figure out a way to not only shirk their responsibilities under the law, but also appear hyper-religious in doing so. Today, we have a more secular view. We're not bound by the law in any means than we did in the ancient world. Today, many times, we, unfortunately, we ship our parents to a facility that cares for them because it's easier. I guess in some cases, this might be the most humane thing, depending on their level of care or their stage of um, disease or whatever, whatever's ailing them. But many times it's just simpler, simpler, less intrusive. But for the Jews who would say Corbin, it's the most, Corbin's the most important thing. This is for use by God. I have to take care of my aging, if I have to take care of my aging parents, I will not be able to give to God and therefore I'll opt out. So Corbin is on, on all my stuff. So for obvious reasons, the religious authorities place higher value on Corbin than in God's commandments to honor one's father and mother. And Jesus is pointing this out. He wasn't falling for it. He cared very little for the traditions of the elders. He cared more for the sacred than the secular. Remember his disciples plucking grain in the fields, Jesus healing on the Sabbath, touching people who were unclean, even making himself unclean, and talking to women. Jesus was more about giving and sustaining life, both physically and spiritually, than he was about secular rules that could be viewed as sacred. Jesus is charting a new course that drew people in instead of pushing people out. Jesus made a habit of flying in the faces of the religious, religiously symbolic and dutiful activities. And the Pharisees were experts in this, and they were experts in checklists and making things and uh, marking things off the list. But Jesus made the Pharisees look inward. And it left them speechless, so much so that they had to send a whole new crew up from Jerusalem. He had already taken care of all the guys in Galilee. There's pretty direct correlations that go on today among the religious that would or, or might be considered traditions of men because they, they either aren't in the Bible or they're contrary to the Word of God or they, they've been distorted so, in some, some manner so far from the nature of God that they don't pass the smell test. I think for most of us in this room, the danger would be to falling into the same camp as the Pharisees. Oh, wait a minute, Trey. We're not Pharisees. Remember, we go to A and C, right? We're not Pharisees. Well, I'd like to think so too, but my Pharisee nature runs pretty deep and it can creep up to me in places that I least expect. For example, we've been commanded to love God and love our neighbors. According to Jesus, this is the first and greatest command and the second is like it, correct? And then he also says that we're commissioned to make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is also true. And I would venture to say that most of us in this room are doing our best, yet we're struggling with just these three. These are the biggies. If Jesus said the greatest of the commandments is this and the second is like it, that's 1A or 1 and 1A. So where would we place church? Where would we place church? Going the physical act of coming to church. Is that a law? Is that a command? 
Does it somehow fall under loving God and loving our neighbor? Maybe. Or do you think it's more closely aligns with the traditions of men? See, going to church isn't biblical. It's not a Bible. There's not a, there's not a passage that says go to church in the Bible. I know for us growing up, for myself, church was not an option. We were there whenever it was open. I don't know if my folks believe that church attendance is one of the Ten Commandments or not. Even at my last church, there was an expectation that you'd be at church all the time. If there was anything going on, you were there, mostly out of duty. And that gets old. So then, if given a choice one Sunday morning, this is just an example to think about this. If given a choice one Sunday morning of loving your neighbor as ourselves, right? One of the big two. Which might mean sacrificing our time, doing something physical or financial, or attending a church service. Would we opt for church service because that's just what good Christians do? Or it might make us look more religious. Or it might make, make us feel good and we want to be fed or we think the worship is awesome. Who does that more closely align with us in the story? The disciples or the Pharisees? So in other words, something that's awesome as going to church, we tend to elevate beyond that of commandments. Anyway, just something to think about. Like the Pharisees, we might use this man-made tradition to avoid obeying God's command. We might add certain nuance to commands of God that make them more appealing to us or our friends or others. For instance, going back to the greatest command, commands, which are love your Lord your God and love your neighbor, an added nuance might be not just to love your neighbor, but to speak truth and love to your neighbor. You heard that one? Anybody know where that's going? See, here's the deal. Speaking the truth to someone is subjective, really. The Bible's very clear. Oh, is it? What did, the, what did Jesus say on the matter? Jesus was very clear. We can get ourselves in trouble when we speak truth if we don't know the truth. If we speak the truth according to our tradition without having the conviction, knowledge, truth, or revelation ourselves, we can get in trouble. So we need to be very careful when projecting what we deem to be true on others. We need to weigh whether we have the relational equity to speak truth at the time. The only truth our neighbor needs to know initially is that God loves them and that we love them. We can get bogged down in other truths without the basic truth of Jesus. First and foremost, Jesus is a lover of people. He cares for them deeply. He advocates for them. He's willing to become unclean for them. He's willing to tend to their physical needs and feed them. Basic needs. Once we build that relational equity, we may have gained the capital to speak truth to them. Truth without a relational component may still be true, but more times than not, it falls on deaf ears or worse, drives them further away from the truth. This is one of the reasons we say that your first ask is an answer. We ask that your first ask not be to church. Don't invite your friends to church. Invite them to your dinner table. Get them around the table. There's something, there's something spiritual. There's something communal. There's something um, sp- spiritual about that. We know that because Jesus did it over and over and over again with those he wanted to build relationships. I'm going to, Zacchaeus, get down from that tree. I'm going to go to dinner with you. We're going to your house. And he was known as a a friend of sinners, friend of tax collectors. So don't let your first ask be to church. Ask Ask people to come to your dinner table. We also know that truth must be handled very carefully. Most situations where religious folks feel the need to speak the truth in love are so tender and so tricky. There's so many layers and unknowns that you cannot simply bust in with what you perceive to be true. Throw it on the table and leave. 
There's many dialogues that need to happen. Hurts and pains and disappointments and loss is uncovered over time through face-to-face interactions. Once we learn the makeup of the person, our friend, who we love, we can then carefully apply truth, always measured, always full of grace. But our personal interaction may even cause a shift in what we believe truth to be. You must know what the truth is. There are very few things that I know as fact theologically. I'm just kind of dumb that way. And well, even those require faith. And so I just decided I would boil them down to four things for you, for me personally. This is all I know theologically. Okay, you might want to get a pencil out. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Truth according to Trey. I believe in God. I believe that God is best reflected in his son, Jesus Christ. I believe that God presents us with the most complete, oops, I got one out of thing. I believe that we can know God through Jesus. That's number three. And then I believe that God presents us with the most complete and perfect version of ourselves when in relationship with him. That's, that's all I know. That's it. That's my truth. What little faith I have, I can live with these. You can take my Bible away, and I still have those. I still believe them. And yes, they take faith, but God gives me that too. Well, preacher man, what about the virgin birth? Yep. What about the crucifixion and Jesus dying on the cross and raising again three days afterwards? Yep, yep, yep. Believe in those. What about eternal life in heaven with him when we die? Sure. I believe all these things are true. And while they may be central to the gospel message, I don't think that they present good news to my neighbor right now. I think there are discussions to be had in community with that neighbor, for sure. But my neighbor needs to know that I love God and that God loves them, and that we're the purest and truest form of ourselves when we're in direct relation with God. How we get there is the other discussions. All those are, they're all still truths, and I believe that. I believe the gospel. But the first thing they need to know is that we, we love them, God loves them, and the purest form of ourselves is when we're in relation with God. Seriously, we see Jesus mold this, model this time and time again as he interacts with sinners. And there's a whole lot of truths that I'm not 100% certain of. Some folks study certain aspects of God's word, and they're 100% convinced until they're not. For example, slavery, suppression of women in church and ministry, and most recently, gay Christians and gay marriage. These things have been widely and blanketly defended using Scripture until justice became an issue, until we come face-to-face with the reality of the fruit of this truth that this truth creates. Then we're left with question the truth, which is okay. It's okay to question truth. It's okay to question God. He's bigger than that. And honestly, we need to question any truth that creates byproducts of loneliness, oppression, depression, fear, exclusion, and suicide. Truth is supposed to set the captives free. Truth is supposed to give life to the full. Truth is supposed to break down walls and barriers, and truth is supposed to save. And that kind of truth is found in the person of Jesus Christ. I think one of the things in this story, and it points out, is our, we need to avoid religious and Christian superstitions, which over time can become habits, which can become traditions. Religious or Christian superstitions. Christian superstitions. This is funny. Growing up in a predominantly Catholic environment in South Texas, I was attuned to seeing rosaries hanging from the rearview mirror. Anybody see that? I'm not going to ask you if you have it because I'm fixing to bust you. Um, the Virgin Mary statue on the dash. dash? Anyway, um, Jesus is my co-pilot bumper sticker or the little, little fish thing, little silver fish. Anybody ever get flipped off by somebody with a fish thing on the back of their car? 
Just me? Okay. Uh, that probably says more about me than it does them, but whatever. Okay, so you might say that those are outward expressions of faith, and that might be for some, but I knew people who believed, and they seriously believed this, if they hung the rosary on the rearview mirror from their car, didn't matter how bad they drove, how fast they drove, or whether they drove impaired or not, that Jesus would protect them and not let them crash or get a ticket or a DUI. That's the way Jesus works, like some mystical genie you can, you know, you can rub and make wishes at. These beliefs are much like the ceremonial washings. They're secular at best and sacrilegious and sac secular beliefs at worst. Like Jesus in some sort of, you know, guy at our beck and call that we can just go, hey, get me out of, bail me out of this jam, Jesus. Christ points to the hypocrisy of such things, and he would have us check our motives and our hearts today. The great news is, is that we are asked to do, what we are asked to do as believers is pretty specific. Jesus didn't leave a lot of wiggle room in it, and we weren't presented with a list of pious superstitions to keep. He didn't, he didn't allow us to just flounder around and try to hope, hopefully we keep God and bad luck at bay. We were presented with the person and work of God's son who saves us from sin. And we have faith in Christ not to make us lucky or to avoid all harm or hardship. We have faith in Christ because he is worthy. He's with us in our suffering and he has promised us eternity with him. I feel the reason Jesus railed against the religious of the day was to rail against the religious of our day. We can't ceremonial, ceremonial wash ourselves enough. We can't ascribe to God as some mystical genie for our good fortune or luck. God wants a transaction of our whole lives. He wants all of us. We can't claim Corbin in areas that we don't want God to touch. That's not the way, that's not the way God wants us to love our neighbor, and that's not the way love works. His example time and again was simply that religion and check boxes and do's and don'ts never lead us to a real and personal relationship with him. They add to the confusion and complicate the simple gospel message that Christ sees us in our sin, loves us anyway, and wants to buy us back. Let's pray.